gonemobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Do you want to build your Xamarin Forms apps faster and with less bugs? Or maybe you keep on getting stunned by the same old issues in Xamarin Android development. Now you can with MFractor for Visual Studio Mac. MFractor makes Xamarin app development in Visual Studio Mac much easier. Use the Xamarin Forms code analysis and generation tools to make working with XAML a breeze. And take the sting out of Android development with resource IntelliSense or mobile-specific C-sharp code analyzers. MFractor will free up time for you to write the core app code that actually makes your business money. You can get started with MFractor today by visiting www.mfractor.com and downloading it now. Welcome back for another episode of Gone Mobile. How's it going today, John? Pretty good. It's uh, Hack Week at Microsoft this week, so we all get to take a week off and shrug off our, our real duties and do something a little bit more fun. Um, do you guys do anything like that ever? Uh, yeah, we try and as a team, we try and do like a, a hackathon every three months or so just to you know keep the fun going, get to get outside of your, your box a little bit. So you get a break from doing uh, Google API bindings for a couple days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now we're uh, I'm, we're working on something with um, a few other guys, Clancy, some home automation, IoT stuff. So it should be interesting. We'll see what we come up with. Nice. Looking forward to it. Um, but I think we should uh, we should just get into things. And I think we have what what turned out accidentally to be, I think, a, a nice and timely episode where um, we've been pursuing this one for for a while. Uh, kind of fell off the radar a little bit, and then. Uh, you know, the Twitterverse really seemed to heat up around this topic again. So, so we figured it was really time to to get none other than Mr. Glenn Block finally on this show to to chat about it. So um, welcome to the show, Glenn. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, there's, there's obviously a ton of different things that we could talk to you about. So so maybe we'll have to to lure you back in for a variety of things. Um, but but mainly we wanted to, to talk about GraphQL today. Um, but before we step into that, I mean, you've obviously you have a long track record of working in in a lot of awesome spaces. Um, so, so for anyone who might not be familiar, uh, you know, can you just give a, a brief intro and, and a little bit of what you're doing now? Brief. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, a lot of people may know work I did when I was at Microsoft. Um, I was the one of the things I was the PM for this thing that became. ASP.NET Web API. So that was like a big deal for me in the API space. Um, and that's that's done pretty well. Um, I worked on the cloud, uh, Microsoft Story for running Node workloads, Node.js workloads in Azure, um, and did some other things at Microsoft working on the .NET framework. Um, then I, um, I was at Splunk for three years uh, working on big data um, and really working on a lot of things I've worked on are really about getting closer to developers. So the Splunk world, where Splunk was traditionally a very IT-focused product, they're really trying to make it, you know, uh, get more in line with this DevOps world. And actually, what I ended up working on related to APIs, um, I ran a lot of their SDKs, uh, which were wrapping their APIs, and we actually built a really high-performance API for handling like hundreds of millions of events per you know per second even so that was um, that was really interesting experience working at really high scale and a great company and for the last two years uh, I kind of caught the serverless wave and I've been working at odd zero on a very interesting product we called extend and what extend is it's a embedded SaaS customization platform so the idea is like you have a SaaS product 
and you want to make it really easy for customers to be able to add integrations. That's one of the huge pain points, but add any integration they want to. And so we give you like this embedded code editor that you can put inside of your product. It's white labeled. It allows you to use Node.js to just create all different kinds of things. But one of the most common use cases is just creating integrations from that SaaS to talk to other services like Slack or it could be things like Zendesk or Marketo. And you know, people will say, oh, well, there's other tools out there that do this. What's unique about this is actually the fact that you're able to author these things in script and code. So it's, it's, it's not targeting a non-technical user but it's script, so it's easy to approach. And it also um, ha- gives you the ability to do exactly what you want to do as opposed to being like bound to some predefined thing that somebody has thought up. And so the serverless angle is that it's all backed by a serverless platform, which gives a seamless experience to the user that just in the product, they can just write the script and it runs, and it runs at scale and securely. And so that's been a lot of fun. And that's what I've been working on for the last two years. And it's really been a shift for me because this is my first time really building a business. So when I joined Odd Zero was to get this business off the ground. And for me, it's really been a way to stretch my muscles and grow into new areas. Like I, I used to be very, very technical. I'm still technical. But if you look at my day to day, it's really helping run a business. So things I never cared about, like marketing, sales, um, you know, pricing, strategy, all these different things, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, you know, the experience and it's an awesome company. So, and it's an interesting space that we're in and we're kind of unique in terms of our offering, which has all the pros and cons associated with that. And the last thing I'll say for all the technical folks out there, messaging is really, really hard. So, you know, you may be living in a world where you don't have to really think about it, But as a business, getting the message right is really difficult. And uh, there is an angle of how I got into GraphQL related to that. Well, (laughs) before we dive right into there, why don't, you know, we step back a bit and, and, you know, for users who are listeners who aren't familiar with GraphQL and including myself to some extent, you know, can you go through just what the basics of GraphQL are? What is it? uh, Why was it developed? That sort of thing. Sure. So let's start with first, um, let's talk about the problem that was sol- was being solved when GraphQL came, and then we'll talk about what it is. I think that's a natural way to introduce it. So GraphQL really originated at Facebook. And this was not a solution looking for a problem. They actually had a problem that they were trying to solve. And my understanding of it is, uh, and Lee Byron, I think, was one of the authors, but there were several people that were authors. The problem that they were trying to solve was the mobile app, as far as I understand, the mobile app for Facebook was making a ton of API calls when the app first loaded up. And all of us who've done mobile development are familiar with this. You have to think about, you know, uh, especially when I'm on a mobile app, because I need to think about battery, responsiveness, all that other stuff. And it turns out that for just the activity feed in the Facebook app, it was a massive amount of queries. I think it was something like 100 queries 100 API calls that were happening when that app loaded. And they were starting to say, well, this just can't work. Like, this is just not scalable, et cetera. And, you know, I'm probably using some poetic license in the story, but I do believe it was something like 100 calls. So the impetus or the catalyst for what ultimately became GraphQL was trying to solve that problem. 
It was like, okay, so we need a way to be able to issue a single request that will then pull down data from lots of different places. And that handling the pull down of the data will not happen on the client in terms of all the different places. The, 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 the fetching and the aggregating of the data is something we need to move to the back end so that this way the client can construct a query that pulls and, and the data that it was pulled was very related. So this is where the graph aspect comes in. It was like there was some root level information, but then there was a lot of child information that comes down into that. And that's what you get when you look at like the activity feed. If you notice, you can drill in to many, many different levels. Of course, when you view the activity feed, you're only seeing the visual presentation of it. But imagine all the metadata and other things that are behind that. So that's the problem that they were trying to solve. And they suddenly found like as they went down this path, and ultimately what led, you know, as they started to build the thing that became GraphQL, they realized, wow, we could do this in a single query. And they did it. So the one thing I really, really like about GraphQL is it is its origins were really based on some a serious problem that was being solved. Many times in the past, even when my work, even when I was at Microsoft, to you know mention as an example. We had ideas of things we saw in the industry that we would build a solution for, and we would build a general purpose solution to try to solve that problem. That's not GraphQL. They had a very tactical problem they were trying to solve that was related to the business, but in doing that, they realized they fell into something. And so a couple of things that they wanted to do was you know, not just handle the ability to fetch all this different data, but they wanted it to be more self-describing and typed. So you know, with APIs, we have all these debates about is it types, is it not types? GraphQL brought its own type system. And make no bones about it, GraphQL does make some assumptions that there's going to be something on the other side that can consume it that understands that type system. But it really added productivity to developers. So this was that first thing. The other thing they started to realize is, okay, so if we can come away for these graphs to get queried, we can also optimize because we can give the clients the ability to specify exactly what they want. They can choose, we can expose this graph and then we can let them choose the fields. Now you might say, well, you know, for especially folks coming out of the Microsoft world, this may immediately sound like some other thing that's been out there, like OData. I think the difference is that they really focused on the protocol and trying not to bleed through the implementation on the back end. And also, one of the things that OData suffered from, especially in the early days, and it's gotten better, was a lack of control on the server side. And so they really tried to say, like, this whole notion of the graph, the, the author, the server, is completely in control of what universe it exposes to the client. And also, it decouples from the database completely in the sense that I can, I can surface types in GraphQL that have no direct tie to a table. Whereas, you know, in the OData world, especially if you look at its roots of Astoria and data services, it was very much about take a database, surface it over a set of APIs. That is not what GraphQL is about. It's about data, but it is not about the data storage mechanism. And it really, really hides that. And that's one of the things I really, really like about it. 
So they created this thing. Now, if you go to the GraphQL homepage, which is graphql.org, you'll see them describe it as a query language, which I think is kind of true, but it's really an ecosystem. Like there is a query language called GraphQL, and that provides a syntax where clients can issue queries to a GraphQL endpoint. Now, another thing they did in this process is they also cut down on the amount of surface area you had to expose in terms of APIs. So in general, most GraphQL implementations are a single endpoint. And so that's also a little bit different than the way OData worked because OData would expose individual um, endpoints as URLs, Mm -hmm. like individual resources. GraphQL exposes an entire graph on a single endpoint. So the funny thing was, if you watched like the Twitter discussion, a lot of people would be like, oh, but does it support hypermedia? And anybody who knows me knows I was a big <laughs> champion of hypermedia. I was one of the early people at Microsoft, aside from Henrik Nielsen, who worked on the HTTP spec, about trying to educate the Microsoft world on what hypermedia can do and what it can enable. And I still believe in it. My, I love GraphQL, but I still believe in hypermedia. But the point is that in the GraphQL world, Because you have a single endpoint, hypermedia is all about navigating links to other resources. So in in one sense, GraphQL solves that problem because it's just a single resource. And it's a protocol for specifying these queries that allows you to get access to all this other information. And all that other information is hidden. You can almost think of a GraphQL endpoint as a proxy to to a lot of other data. Now, one thing that GraphQL reminds me of that some people may not have heard of is years ago, there was this um, offer, there was this library called QL.io, and it was something that eBay used, and it was created by a guy named Subu Alamaraju. Subu, I probably pronounced his name wrong. He actually wrote the, um, the, the Web Services Cookbook, which was a very popular book that was out there, and he was an architect at eBay. And he came up with a plan because they were trying to – their situation that they were trying to address was people living on edge networks like in countries you know, around the world where they don't have good um, – you know, the latency is not good. So they were like, we can't have them issuing all these different queries. So what we want to have is almost like a proxy where we can send it a bunch of uh, information about a query and then a server can go and execute that. So they were really the first ones that I think came down this GraphQL path. But they did a little bit differently in the sense that they allowed actually the client to stitch together other APIs that had no knowledge of QL.io, they came up with this whole protocol that you would upload to the server and then the server knew how to navigate that. That's not GraphQL. But there are similarities that I see um, in that it was typed and other things. But what GraphQL does is say, okay, as a server, I expose a bunch of metadata. You can say, oh, that's like OData. Again, it's different. The devil's (laughs) in the details, but it does expose a schema. And it has a core concept called types. Now, again, in the OData world, there were resources that historically always corresponded to a table. That is not the concept of types. Types in GraphQL are really just a way to surface information to the client and in a named way. And they don't have any coupling or connection to a database. They may be implemented back by a database or may not be. But all I can tell you from having worked with GraphQL is that it does not drive you down that path of like, oh, this is like a Rails 
you know, back end where, you know, I'm using like active record and everything is a table. It's not trying to do that. It's really trying to give you this flexibility of pull data from anywhere. My data could be, I could have one type where even individual fields, some might be in S3, some might be in blob storage, some might be in MongoDB. Now you'd be like, well, why do I need to do that? Well, maybe you don't, <laughs> but there are places where we've all dealt with things where we needed to augment data. Maybe we wanted to pull some information from memory. And GraphQL makes that really, really easy because of that decoupling that it creates with this notion of types. The other thing, so, so, so that's what you have. So you have like this schema and you have these concepts called types and then types have fields. Now here's where it gets really interesting because another thing that's very relevant about how they did GraphQL and part of how they wanted to handle this flexibility and this also ties into a bit of why GraphQL is such a fit, good fit for serverless, is they really embraced functional. They said when they came up with this idea, they're like, we're going to be pulling fields from lots of different places. And we need to just make it super easy to pull from anywhere, including memory. So how they do that, every single field of every GraphQL type is a function. So it's like really, really cool because all I have to think about is, okay, I want to get this data from three different places. Can I think about functions for pulling those different fields? And there is some way to kind of share state in terms of like there's some some search query that I'm using where I'm searching based on a certain key. I can make sure that that key propagates to, they call them resolvers. So that's another key part of GraphQL is you have like the type, the, you have the the schema, which contains the type system. The type system exposes fields. Um, those fields all have resolvers associated with them, which are functions that essentially go and invoke some backend somewhere or in memory to get data. It's a really simple idea, but because it reminds me a lot of also like one of the things that people loved about Node is how compositional it was, that you could start at the lowest level, get full control to do exactly what you want, and you could build higher level things. So that functional model I just described to you, you can build higher level frameworks that leverage that to even give you that Rails-like experience. But the point is, you don't have to go down that path. Before I go any further, is this making sense so far? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and like you were saying, I think it's really easy for these conversations to turn into this versus that sort of thing. Like the common one is, you know, well, what about rest and, and all that yep. stuff? And I do want to get yep, to I that will. a little bit, I but I definitely want to keep, uh, um, before we get there, I want to keep trying to paint a picture of like what it's actually like to to implement GraphQL. And, and also just on the consumer side, like I think one of the more powerful pieces of it is the the querying yep. aspect of it and the flexibility there, so many, right? So can you speak a little bit to like what it actually looks like from the consumer side to interact with a GraphQL API? Yes, let me just go slightly further. So we've talked about types, we've talked about fields. The next first class thing that GraphQL exposes is queries. So this is, I'll compare it again to OData. In the OData world, you create arbitrary queries. And that actually opened up a lot of pain, a lot of pain on the server implementation side. As a matter of fact, early on, one of my good friends, uh, two of my good friends, Howard Durking and Jeff Handley worked on NuGet. NuGet had major problems because it was based on OData and people could issue arbitrary queries that actually brought mm -hmm. the service down. A lot of us remember those days. <laughs> 
In oh, GraphQL, yeah. those queries are completely predefined. Now, GraphQL gives you a structure that allows you to then go further, but it allows me to say, here's the types of queries I want to support. And I still get flexibility. Like if I talk to this type, then I can pick the fields that I want, but I can also add like filters that are required. Like I can say, you can't get all items. You must give me a key that says, you know, I can only get this max number or I can get this range or that. So you have queries that are published. The other, th the other thing that you have are mutations. So whereas queries are for pulling data, mutations are a way to allow updates to happen. Even that is very, very controlled. I can define like here's the – you create special types for mutations. So you're telling the client almost to fill it in like a form. Here's the information you need to provide me to use this mutation. And again, GraphQL gives some flexibility there, but it does let you have that top level of control. And that's what prevents from just arbitrary things from being sent. Um, and then the last thing you have, which is also a really cool aspect of GraphQL, is subscriptions. And subscriptions are like event notifications. And you can do some really, really cool things there. Uh, this is another thing that I think is really compelling about GraphQL. Facebook created GraphQL, and early on, they decided to share this with the community. And the community got involved very, very early and kind of became a joint ownership thing. It was no longer just Facebook's thing. And they created a real spec for GraphQL. What that allowed was an ecosystem of libraries of every platform, client and server, to pop up. Facebook created their own client, uh, which was called Relay. But then Apollo came along, and Apollo was formed from Meteor, which is a company many of you may remember, That and they created the Apollo client. The Apollo client has become more popular than Facebook's client. Not only did they create Apollo client, but they created a node server called Apollo Server. Apollo Server made it easier to implement a GraphQL endpoint. So in terms of the client consumption experience, it depends. If you're, you know, if you're using libraries and things like that, like Relay or Apollo, they know how to pull down the GraphQL schema. They give you the ability to get access to it. So, you know, you can you can use the schema to find out what's available. And then you can create your queries. And they've done higher level frameworks for binding and things like that. So you can, you know, build um let me just uh, mention one other thing. The Facebook client was a React client. So GraphQL, although not limited to React, certainly started off with the biggest ecosystem around React development, React and React Native. So that's where you've seen the initial huge traction, but it has certainly moved beyond that. You have developers building view applications using GraphQL. You can even build machine-to-machine -machine applications that use GraphQL. So what, what people really like about it, though, and what it has enabled, aside from handling these performance issues that I mentioned, it has opened up a door that has enabled like UX teams and front-end teams to be able to have more control in querying the kind of things that they want without having to be blocked by the API team not exposing the particular endpoint that they want. Now, it's still... But then it makes the API teams happy because they still control what the universe looks like. So in that world, it's like, oh, if there's a piece of data that I want that is not exposed in the graph, yes, I can go back to the team and say, hey, can you add this to the schema? 
so that I'll be able to query against it. But what they don't have to do is worry about things like offering an ability to say, which fields do you want? And, you know, which child things do you want? Because that all just gets defined in the graph. And then it gives the flexibility for each implementer of a different um, screen to be able to, or component to say, well, I just need these three fields. And the beauty of that is that's the only thing that will get sent across the wire. And on the implementation side, like let's say I was backing by a database. Well, I have all the information so that even the query I issued to the database only contains those fields. So this is why I think GraphQL really has exploded. It's actually not about the server. It's about the way it has enabled like React developers initially to just be super productive in doing the things that they want to do, removing the bottlenecks of the API team. And I think a lot of it just has to do with the ecosystem. The fact that you know people got on board with it, React was exploding, and this just became kind of the de facto way to get information from the back end. So I'm curious you know, to, to learn a little bit more about like what the queries actually look like. Um, so it, does, it doesn't sound like it's something like a SQL structured kind of language or anything like that. Can you talk a little bit about like the yep. the technical side of what that looks like? Absolutely. And actually, this is one of the things people really like about GraphQL as well. It's very expressive. So it almost looks like a JSON. It's not exactly a JSON, but you you basically construct your queries as a graph. Now, so it so the when you look at it, you know, and again, I'll I'll compare to OData. You know, having written some complex OData queries, I'll get like a headache trying to read that because it's all packed into the query string. GraphQL is a is a representation. Think of a JSON document. It's a document and I specify, and there's some syntax for me to specify like what types I want. And I can even specify arguments. That's a key thing. That's what allows the server really to be in control is I can say, you can't access the list of all these types. You have to provide me these arguments like ranges or some field to filter on. And that's all expressed. So if you, the best way to see the syntax really quickly is for the listeners, just go to graphql.org and they will show you examples of the query syntax. Um, but it's nice and it's, and it's easy. And then the other thing talking about the ecosystem is they actually have a tool that you could compare almost to query analyzer. It's called graphical. So for listeners to really try, the fastest way to try out GraphQL actually is go to GitHub. GitHub has a GraphQL API explorer. It's basically graphical. So in the GraphQL ecosystem, there's this standard tool chain that most GraphQL um, endpoint sites will embed in their site. And it allows me to log in and just do queries and utilize the graph, uh, the GraphQL query syntax to issue those queries. And it is super amazing because graphical pulls down the schema information. So you get syntax completion as you're building out that graph. It's really a sight to see. GitHub was very early at adopting GraphQL and they already had a standard API. So we can talk a bit about why would they do both. But if you go to that search for that GraphQL Explorer on GitHub, you can just get in and start issuing queries. And you'll see how you can use the syntax completion to drill down and how it will even have those arguments that I talked about of where you can't get like all repos, for example. You need to provide me some parameters like what the organization is or whatever. So so really, really um, cool. And yeah, I think the fact that it's also so expressive 
means it's also just easy to remember. It's easy to grok. It's easy to remember. And graphical just makes it really simple as you're developing. Most, I think most GraphQL developers will use graphical to just kind of construct the queries, try them out, see if they're working, and then they'll just put those into their application. Jumping back a little bit too, I w- I'm curious to, to speak a little bit more towards the the mutation side of the API. Um, I mean, I definitely agree. And as I started playing with with GraphQL myself, the introspection side is where it's a huge light bulb moment, and it, it gives you a lot. And again, not to jump straight straight into like REST comparisons or hypermedia and whatever, but it gives you a lot of that discoverability that you're supposed to get through hypermedia and linking and all that, but right in line in IntelliSense, and you're querying in basically the same structure as your object model. Um, but the the mutation side of things is is interesting too. So if you're defining an API and, and you're defining some of those mutations, like what does that end up looking like? Is this a little bit more of like a move back towards a, a more like RPC-ish sort of model just to draw yet another comparison in this? Yeah, or like, I mean, yes and no. Like? You know, it really depends on how you implement it. But basically, you know, the same way you're issuing queries when you, you have named things. So the schema exposes named things like named mutations. And so... I can even have multiple mutations against the same type underneath. And I've done that because it really is geared toward the client. Like what does the client need to get stuff done? Um, so, you know, you, you, you're you utilizing similar syntax to the query syntax to construct a mutation and you're providing it. Here are the fields that I want to send as part of this mutation. And then I'm just making that call and it's going to either accept that mutation or not. And then it's up to the back end. And actually, they use resolvers on the mutation side as well. So you have that same level of flexibility. Let's say that, and this is where it's really cool. Let's say that that update on the back end is going to need to propagate to multiple data stores, which is possible. Well, because mutations are all functional, I again have that place to write all that logic that does exactly what I want to do. Um, but yeah, it's really simple. And what's nice about it, again, is you get the discoverability there. So you're not just like, oh, let me try anything arbitrary. I can see here's the mutations that are supported. And if I try to do one that's not supported, it's just going to fail because there's no type to find there. Graphical, this is cool too, because like graphical and a lot of the SDKs, they keep you honest. They've downloaded the schema, so they don't even have to make the API call to see if this is going to work. They know it's not going to work. So it's, it's, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of um, forgetting the language, but there's that one language that is like, you know, forces you to do the right thing. Like it knows ahead of time if you're going to do the right thing or not. I'm, it's not Erlang. I'm forgetting the name of it and somebody's going to like kill me, but maybe you guys can remember it. Um, but it's that kind of thing. Like it knows that this query is going to succeed or fail, which is really cool. Yeah, it's that whole pit of success type of thing, right? It's so if I'm from the client side, I'm an application of you know, be it React or mobile app or whatever it is, and I'm I'm calling the server and, and make doing calling one of those mutations. What am I getting back in response from that mutation? Is it a query? Am I also defining in what I send to the server yes, what I want? It's back, really or cool. Is it, yes. You know, so I can say like I want to see just these two fit. Maybe all I care about is the ID. I just want to know the ID of the created thing because I've already got all the other data there, so I don't need you to send me that back. So that is a really cool aspect of GraphQL. For every query, for every, I'll use query in quotes, for any call that you make, you're defining the response as well. Now, it's up to the server to action on that. 
But you're, what you're saying is like, so the server might say in the implementation of the resolver that I'm returning the full object that was created with the ID. But in my mutation, I can specify I only want one field. Only one field will come across the wire. It's not like client side. It's getting the whole thing and extracting the one field. Only the one field will pass across the wire. And the other benefit about when you mentioned about um, pit of success, it's not just pit of success. It actually is a is a performance benefit in the sense that I'm not doing needless queries against the back end. Like imagine in a large scale system and a bunch of people try to do the wrong query. The, a lot of the libraries and things will prevent those queries from ever even making an API call. So I, I saw the word introspection tossed around a little bit between you and Greg, and, and I'm going to play dumb here and actually be dumb because I don't know what, what exactly that means in, in the, the context here. Can you kind of describe yes. that? Yes. So what we mean when we say introspection is the ability to pull down the schema. And so tooling reads the schema and then allows me to just drill in and see what's going on. And in graphical, you really see that with the syntax completion. But even when you use the libraries, it's about programmatically. Like I can inspect the schema, I can build my own version of graphical. It's all using the API. So it's going and querying the schema as a special thing in GraphQL that's exposed. And I can pull down that schema and read it and figure out the universe of things that are possible. So this is why SDKs are able to do that enforcement that I just spoke about, because they dynamically read the schema, and then they're able to provide that level of enforcement on the client. Does that, does that make sense? Kind of sounds wisdily. In a, yes, in, but different in the sense that I think, you know, Wisdle was all pure RPC and Wisdle didn't really have mm -hmm. a notion of, you know, this is built for purpose. So you can abuse it, certainly. And, and, and there are people that are taking it further than what it was really maybe designed for. But one thing that I think is great about it is the fact that it really is built around data. So whereas Wisdle is just generic, like I call operations, that's really not what this is. And a lot of the arguers of OData would say how OData was better than Wisdle for that reason, because, hey, it allowed me to specify a data structure. So it's built for purpose. Um, and it's definitely not as intimidating as uh, Wisdle, I can say. Like when you read it, <laughs> it seems like this actually makes sense. It's providing a direct benefit rather than, and, and, and most developers don't even see it. So it doesn't get in the way. And the other thing it doesn't have that Wisdle had is it's not about generating. Where Wisdle was a pain in the ass was when it came to like code gen. Like I would generate a strongly typed client against this Wisdle, then the service changed definition, that client broke. These clients are not strongly typed. They emit types, but they're dynamic in how they work. And Part of this is, I think, aligned too with, you know, when you think about the browser and JavaScript, well, now we have TypeScript. So that's an interesting question. But still, it's not about code gen. It's dynamically emitting data that matches a structure. And because you have the schema, you know what to expect. And the tooling knows what to expect. So I think I think that actually segues pretty nicely into to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, um, you know, especially given who a lot of our audience is for this show, like how this really fits into the .NET ecosystem where, I mean, you know, when you spoke to it just a, a little bit before of it's easy to see how this sort of mindset fits with something like JavaScript that's, you know, loosely typed or eventually typed or depending on how you're, you're building your apps. 
Um, you know, a lot of those systems are using document databases and it, it's a whole, you know, typing is less of a thing there. So it's easy to imagine from the, someone on the .NET side of things will being like, well, how does this work with SQL Server in my database? And, you know, this feels like an N plus one waiting to happen. And how do I, how does this work with, you know, defining data types in, in my code side? Um, yep. So without making you give away your entire course that I know that you have up on uh, LinkedIn <laughs> Learning, like, can you speak a little bit to, to what that actually looks like in, in practice there? Yeah. So I was literally thinking about that. So shameless plug, I do have a course on GraphQL for .NET developers. So there is a story there. Um, it's available on, you know, every time lately, anything done with LinkedIn learning, you got to say it's available two places. So it's available on LinkedIn learning and it's available on Linda. So whichever one you choose to use and just search for GraphQL and .NET, you should find it. Um, and this is all about how to build a GraphQL endpoint. It doesn't teach you GraphQL. But there's also another great course that I'd recommend by Eve Porcello that is on LinkedIn that actually covers all the essentials of what GraphQL is and the type system. She doesn't talk about how to build the server, but she talks a lot about the model and the consumption and all of that. So I certainly recommend that as well. Um, so there absolutely is a story for .NET developers, and that's one of the reasons I built the course, was to tell that story. So there's a there, the, the biggest, I would say, library that is adopted in this space is a library called GraphQL for .NET. And GraphQL.net, sorry, GraphQL4.net will allow you to build um, a .NET backend, which is a GraphQL endpoint. And it has really rich support. It supports um, ASP.NET Core. Um, you, you know, you could just do a, core, a, a .NET Core application. There's, there's different models of how you can do it, but it definitely has full support for ASP.NET Core. I use ASP.NET Core in my course. Um, and so you can run it on Core CLR. You can run it on full.net, um, and it will let you build your GraphQL endpoints, and it supports strong types as well. Um, so what, what GraphQL.net pushes you down a model of, it's almost like AutoMapper. It's not using AutoMapper, but it pushes you down this model of like you can define real types. And if you look at my um, course, you'll see that I do define real types, and then you define the GraphQL types. And the GraphQL types, it does have a strongly typed way of doing that, and it has a dynamic way of doing that. Um, and so what you end up doing with your resolvers is you talk to some data store, and you pull back real types from that data store, and then there's a way to do a mapping. So it's really cool. In the definition of the GraphQL types in, uh, in GraphQL for .NET, you're, this is where it gets auto-mappery. Mm -hmm. You're supplying transformations of how to get it from a model. So you create this type that is a generic type and the T in this case is the model. And you then are able to use a fluent API. It's really nice to do that mapping. And they also have a default way to do the mapping. So for the for the server side, no problem. And then there are implementations on the back end that wrap that functional that I told you about. So for example, they I think there's a plugin that allows you to do like entity framework if you want to do entity framework. Um, again, the nice thing is you don't have to. So if you look at my course, I do not use EF. I literally just went back to good old dependency injection and have a bunch of services that in this case are going against in-memory repositories. And I did that deliberately to keep the concept down, but also to just show the power of GraphQL, how easy it is to mock the data or pull from anywhere. I can easily change that service to then have it use EF under the covers. 
that you know is is my decision but it doesn't couple me down that path but one thing that's also nice giving a plug because in the .NET world, you know, when you get in the JavaScript world and you suddenly start realizing that IOC containers have a lot less value because of the malleability of the language, but they still have value in kind of strongly typed languages. So GraphQL for .NET really embraced IOC from the get-go. So you can easily plug in your IOC container. You can start with just pure functional. They have a provider where you can just give it a function and tell it, you know, very autofacky that tells you how to resolve stuff, but you can absolutely plug in whatever you want. And then it embraces ASP.NET Core so that, you know, the services, uh, the, the dependency resolver model, it embraces the dependency resolver model. That makes it really, really useful because when I create my services that are responsible for pulling back the data, you know, again, I can start off and just have in-memory stuff, but I can easily go and have those services inject other services, which talk to a real data store. And I do show this in my course. So if any of what you're hearing about today is interesting and you're a .NET developer, yes, it's a shameless plug. <laughs> but one thing I guarantee you with my course is I take you from zero to building out a GraphQL endpoint over a couple of hours. Granted, there's a bunch of things I don't touch on, like security, and it's not hitting against a real database, but it shows you the essentials of how you can use GraphQL.net. And once you get there, you've got the fundamentals, and you you know it puts you it puts the kind of tools in place to allow you to now take this much much further. And I do point that out along the way, so um, you know definitely something to consider. Um, but yes, there is a story there, and then there's the client side. So there are .NET libraries for consumption on the client. Um, and when you get on the client side, you have kind of two paths you can go. One is just using like dynamic. So fortunately, C-sharp has the dynamic language, so you can emit dynamic types. But there also is a strongly typed story there as well. So if you want to create strong types that bind to the results that you got back, you can do that. And there are libraries, client libraries for doing that. Um, if you look at GitHub, they've been a big embracer of this, like Octo, uh, OctoKit, you know, like for .NET um, embraces this. And that there are some additional GraphQL extensions for, for OctoKit that allow you to uh, get strong types back. So it's not mutually exclusive and, and there is support for both. Um, one other thing I wanted to touch on that's really interesting about the GraphQL ecosystem is caching. So there's a concept called data loader and GraphQL for .NET has support for data loader. Somebody's implemented that, I think, from the community. And so what data loader is really nice about is, you know, the cool thing about all these queries and the world being so well-defined is it lends itself well for like middle tier type caching and even caching on the client. So there's data loader client libraries that you can use in JavaScript and you can actually run like the network monitor and see how it's optimizing and keeping cache data and, you know, because it knows the structure, it knows how to do that. So, um, so yeah, it's, re it's really, really cool. Yes, there's a story for .NET. And if you look at the NuGet package, like the last time I checked, they've got like 50,000 downloads. So this is happening. There are companies that are using this. It's still nascent, to be fair. I think it's the future. And that's one of the reasons I did the course as well. I'm like, you know, a lot of things in the .NET world tend to kind of take their time to trickle mm -hmm. in. This is literally exploding outside the .NET world. So like when people come and they're like, oh, what about OData? I'm like, the people 
that are using this don't know about OData and don't care about it. <laughs> what they care about is it's kind of allowing them to get their job done efficiently. And they see an exploding ecosystem of this. And just to call out really big companies that are using this one, I mean, I mentioned GitHub, but let's go even bigger than that. SAP. Mm-hmm. SAP Concur right now is all over GraphQL. And one of the reasons they're all over it gets to a second thing that we do need to talk about, which is how this relates to traditional REST or REST-ish APIs. Now, like, is there ever really a, a place where GraphQL isn't a good fit? Like, it sounds like, you know, you're kind of, this is the future, but like, are there places that are obviously, you know, this is not a place that you want to use GraphQL? Sure. So one thing about GraphQL is all the queries are over post. So, you know, you you lose you lose some of the caching benefits of the web that we pushed all the time when we talked about why you should build good APIs. Um, it's a single resource. Now, there are companies that are coming up with solutions for this, like Apollo. But the advantage of the web is like if I do a get, there are servers that I don't know anything about that can step in and optimize those queries for me. And I don't get that with GraphQL today because you know there's limited, it's, you can't really do a post over get. Technically the spec doesn't stop you, but it doesn't, tells, you know, it, does, it doesn't tell servers that they're required to do it. A server could ignore it, a server could do something with it. Most servers will ignore it. So that means you're stuck with the limitations of what you can put in the query string if you tried to make it work. Query string still does have limitations in size, which a GraphQL can certainly go over. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's, that's a place where you're suffering. And that's why things like data loader become really important in this world. So you can push that, that caching either to the client or have some semblance of caching on your server. But what you don't have is the infrastructure of the web doing that for you. Um, Another thing I would say is that it really is oriented around data. It's easy to think of like the world is data. But reality of it is that, you know, if I'm trying to do a very purpose-built like workflow, I still think hypermedia is great for that. Also, to work in the GraphQL world, the universe has to be known by the server. Mm-hmm. Where hypermedia, so I gave this talk at API Days New Zealand about the future of workflow. Uh, it got received really, really well. I called it Hypergoal. And this was based on some work that I did with a bunch of other people um, at RestFest years ago, including some folks from IBM and a bunch of other companies to postulate, like, imagine we have a distributed workflow across an unlimited number of systems. And we came up with some very real use cases for why you might want to do this. Hypermedia is great for that. GraphQL is not. Because GraphQL, everything is confined to a single known universe. It's great for using it for the right things. Um, you can do some semblance of workflow with mutations, but it's really limited. Like it's really about updating things. Now, I because I can create what I'll I can create types that are not bound to data. So I can create workflow specific types. You know, like procurement or something like that, or a transaction. But it's still pretty limited. If I'm trying to do a multi-step sophisticated workflow, and guess what? world that uses GraphQL, there are still lots of systems that do this. So for And a lot of those tend to be machine-to-machine type communication. So I don't think GraphQL is ideal for machine-to-machine type communication. Now, there'll probably be some haters. I don't, I don't care. Like, it's like, can you do it? Yes. Is it the ideal for it? No. So I, you know, I think it has a place. And I think where the place that it's really pronounced is you have a client, like a rich client, 
that needs to consume data. They have the requirement that that data may come from anywhere. You know, well, not come from anywhere, but the storage, they don't want to deal with the storage details. Mm -hmm. They just want a way to be able to query data from a system and have the flexibility of constructing those queries the way that they want. But, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't just use it for every single problem that there is out there. And that also gets into that further conversation of how this relates to REST APIs, which we should definitely make sure we get into that before we end the call. <laughs> yeah, that's actually exactly what I was about to bring up. I'm looking at the clock I and mean, we're, we're definitely coming up on the towards the end of our time here. So I wanted to, to make sure to, to leave open a, a spot for, for some of the stuff that we intentionally deferred from the beginning to, to let GraphQL sort of speak for itself instead of just being uh, this versus that sort of thing. Um, but is there anything else like in particular that you would call out, be it, I don't know, it's things like errors or media types or any of the other sort of comparison points that, that are worth kind of chatting through? Well, the subscriptions are really cool. Um, again, that's another very client-focused thing. But the fact that it has a baked-in way and the client libraries, a lot of those subscriptions happen over WebSockets. Mm -hmm. But it's like, take WebSockets, for example. If I use a server that has WebSockets, I have no idea what that's going to look like unless I like, you know, I can read the documentation. But every different server will do WebSockets differently. Mm -hmm. um, this creates a standard protocol. And the standardization of GraphQL, you can't look past it. That is what has made it so powerful and allowed this ecosystem to build because everybody just got together shockingly and agreed, like, here's the things we're going to need and here's how we're going to do it. So, you know, I can build. And if you look in my course, I show you how in .NET and thanks to ASP.NET Core having such great support for WebSockets, there's support in GraphQL for .NET for doing subscriptions. And it's really, really cool. You open two browsers, you send a mutation, and on the other side, you subscribe. Subscription, it all uses the same syntax, which is really cool too. So once you learn it, you get it. Subscriptions, I'm sending a query essentially, but that query is being used to specify what is the subscription I want to wire up to. And again, I get to say, what's the return value that I'm going to get when the subscription uh, when the event is actually fired. And then I just get to, you know, listen as many times as I want. And I start seeing when I go do those mutations, those notifications show up and they use WebSockets as the default. And it's really, really cool. So that part is also really cool. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, you do have limitations in what the data is going to look like. I can't return an image nicely in GraphQL. Mm -hmm. Anybody who saw my early demos of Web API, I mean, they were stupid, but they were, but they were showing people to think of a new way of thinking. Like, imagine an API that returns a PNG, like because the content type that was specified was in, in the accept header. I specified that I want to have like image slash PNG. I can't do that in GraphQL. Like, I can encode an image in like the response that is going to be this JSON-like thing, but. It's not ideal. I can't bind a browser directly to that. I can an API. I showed it. I showed how in Fiddler, I was able to just like query the <laughs> contact manager back in the day, all the way going back to like, you know, 2010, I showed how we could do an HTTP query and get back an actual image or a PDF or a V card. I can't do any of that. So you don't get that level of interoperability in terms of formats. So it's, you got to use it for what it's what it's useful for. Now, you could have a GraphQL endpoint that exposes a URL as a field, 
and say, hey, you want the image? Hit this field. That would be a much better way to do it, right? I would not try to use GraphQL to encode that image to return it. That just feels, you know, not like a good use to me. Absolutely. So anything else that, that we should make sure to, to call out? So why is Concur using GraphQL? Concur has tons of legacy APIs. The beauty of this resolver approach with functions is it makes it very easy, and I mean it, to wrap an existing API and get it to be surfaced through GraphQL. So it's not a this or that. And so Concur has tons of APIs, but the client, which is their browser clients, the future for them is their browser clients are not invoking those APIs, at least for fetching data and things like that. They're utilizing GraphQL. Why? Because it allows the creators of those user interfaces to leverage GraphQL's query language to specify what they want. Plus, it allows them to leverage things like notifications through, you know, uh, through subscriptions which makes a lot of sense and mutations as well. So they don't, you know, it's not a this or that. And that was part of why I, you know, my rant on Twitter was a bit of poking on this, but it's like, so first off, people do this comparison of like rest is dead GraphQL. So first off on face value, that is just a completely wrong, ignorant statement. And yes, I will keep fighting it. Call me pedantic. If you want to, it's like, REST is powering the web, and if it didn't exist, you wouldn't have GraphQL endpoints because it literally drives the fabric of the web, whether you like it or not. It's just there. Get <laughs> over it. Now, you may not want to overtly go and build services that apply the REST constraints. Fine. But guess what? A good portion of the infrastructure of the web uses it anyway. Get over it. So that was part of that rant. But the second thing is like when people say that comment, what they really mean, but I, I am a big believer in mean what you say, say what you mean, is they mean that the traditional kinds of data fetching and updating APIs that you would implement, you know, in a REST-ish world, this is much nicer. Why? Because it's a standard, it's easy. I don't have to think about a lot of the implementation details of the API itself, because that's all been defined for me. I don't have to think about building client libraries because mm -hmm. there's already an ecosystem for it. So that's what people really mean. I still don't care because it's like, I'm a, I know what REST is, and I just want people to be like, hey, if you want to say REST APIs or REST-ish APIs, whatever, fine. But it's it's just not true what you're saying. And I'm just not going to accept it. Like, you can say that boat has sailed. But it's like, sorry, you're wrong. And I'm going to point it out. I have better things to do, so I don't get that bent out of shape about it. But every once in a while, and what spurred on that Twitter storm, by the way, is some person came along and wrote, rest is, you know, like 2000 and whatever. GraphQL is the future. And I'm just like, that is a stupid statement. It does not make sense. Hence, I, you know, pointed that out. But let me be very clear that I am not saying that GraphQL is not, I mean, I think it's been very clear on this show. GraphQL is useful. I like it. If I was building a front end, I most likely would use GraphQL because of the power that it provides. Um, and even in our product, we've seen a healthy adoption of GraphQL platforms utilizing our product. And that's actually got me into GraphQL, was seeing how there was this explosion of interest in GraphQL, particularly in the serverless space. 
And, and I know I mentioned that, but why does it lend well to serverless? Because serverless at the end of the day or, or function as a service is all about functions. And tying those functions to resolvers is just a very natural fit. So, yes, we could go on for another hour, but hopefully this helped like in terms of clarifying that, you know, what I think is really powerful and compelling about GraphQL is it can live side by side with other APIs that do things that they do well. And it can easily wrap them and integrate them. And I haven't seen anything else, honestly, that has gained the traction. Because it doesn't matter if you say, oh, I could do that with something else. Okay, but does it have the traction that's going to make it easy for any developer to just get on board and do this? The answer is no. So GraphQL has the traction, it has the ecosystem, and it has that flexibility of being able to be that bridge to other kinds of APIs. No, this has been great. And I think like we always we always say that, you know, we have guests on our show partially just to learn a little bit of stuff um, ourselves that we didn't know as an easy way to get someone to tell us about a technology or something. So I think uh, that box has been checked for me. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah, hopefully it's piqued the interest. Don't be afraid of it. Like whether you want to use GraphQL or not, and I was having a debate on this with someone with Twitter, just go look at it. You know, spend a couple of hours with it and at least get an understanding about what it does. It does some pretty, pretty cool stuff. And I think it's a great testimony of what is possible with community and open source because its success absolutely follows a page in the book of Node of like it really brought in a community of adopters early. And so they are taking it forward. And that's what makes it, that's one of the things that makes it really compelling. Awesome. Well, Glenn, somehow the, the hour really flew by. I'm glad we, we were finally able to, to make this episode happen and finally get you on the show. Uh, I guess, you know, the universe was waiting for, for this latest tweet storm to happen to, to bring all the pieces kind of together. But thanks so much for, for coming on and chatting through all this. Oh, thank you guys for having me. This was a, this was a great conversation. Um, and yeah, for people that are interested, again, if you're a .NET developer, check out my course. I promise you, you'll get a really good hands-on experience and, and, you know, get your feet wet. You might decide it's not for you, but it will certainly take you through it where, you know, you'll really get some hands-on experience and, and definitely check out GraphQL for .NET, which has a great community. Uh, Joe McBride, who's the original author, is really awesome. Um, they've got a Gitter uh, community as well. And, and it, it's, it's awesome to see this taking off. And just take my words on this. This is the future and it will be the future for .NET developers. Right on. Well, we'll have a lot of awesome links in the show notes, including to the, the course. But thanks again, Glenn, for, for coming on. And thanks as always to everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time on Gone Mobile.